Hammer Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Rick Marr will join us to discuss Beyond the Wall of Resistance. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Well, organizing change with an organization can be frustratingly difficult and oftentimes fraught with failure. Why is so change difficult within an organization, and how can resistance to change be overcome? Join us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Rick Maurer. Mr. Maurer teaches at the Gestalt Institute of Cleveland and is an advisor to leaders in large organizations on ways to plan and implement change successfully. He is the noted author of several books on the subject, including Why Don't You Want What I Want and Feedback Toolkit. His book, Beyond the Wall of Resistance, Why 70% of All Change Still Fail and What You Can Do About It, is now in its second edition and explores this topic for a general audience. Mr. Maurer, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks. Good to be here. Why does change fail? Well, there are a number of reasons. One big one is that leaders really don't understand what resistance is. They know they don't like it, but they don't quite know how to engage with it. Therefore, they don't quite know why people support change. And and that's one big reason. But what I found is the reason that the failure rate has remained at 70% for almost 15 years is there are a lot of underlying problems. I mean, one is sometimes people just don't know what to do. The leaders don't know how to lead change. And that's actually a fairly little problem. The bigger problem connected to that is they know how to lead change, but they don't know how to do it. In other words, if you and I watch golf on Saturday afternoon, we may be great at saying, oh, this is the club he should use, this is how he ought to get out of the sand trap, but we never pick up clubs ourselves. Once we get out there, we're going to do a pretty pathetic job, and that happens a lot. People get educated, they go to a lot of training, they read a lot of books on change, and then instead of getting to practice, like taking a bucket of balls out, the first change they've got to work on is a multi-million dollar endeavor, and there's no chance to learn, there's no chance to make mistakes. And consequently, there's a huge gap, as two guys, Pfeffer and Sutton, said, there's a huge knowing-doing gap in organizations. Yeah, there's some others, but those, those are two huge ones. So how does then one take the knowledge that one has about change and actually implement it successfully? Yeah. Well, well, the first thing is to just do a quick assessment and say, do I really know how to lead change? Do I know how to get started, engage people, and all that? And if the answer is yes, then say, what am I doing for myself or, if I'm the senior leader, for other people to give them an opportunity to practice in relatively safe environments? In other words, maybe being the assistant on a big change, taking over a change where all eyes are not watching, where another thing is where the goal is to learn about change. And so if the project is successful, that's good, but the primary goal is to learn about it so that people are reflective. They, they actually spend time debriefing and saying, so what can we learn from this? 
you can go off to training, but a lot of training doesn't give you that kind of hands-on practice. Let's say the baseball players get in spring training, and that's what you've got to do. You've got to you've got to replicate what musicians and athletes do, which is practice and practice and practice. Well, I guess the question is, how does one get that practice? You don't. If you get thrown in, it's like you or I getting thrown into the Masters or the NBA Finals. I mean, we go, wait a minute, what are we doing here? The practice comes in safer environments. So that is being assigned to smaller projects, being assigned to somebody who really is good at leading change and being his or her assistant so that there's a chance to have a cup of coffee at the end of the day or a drink or something and say, hey, I noticed that when people started voicing a lot of objections, you didn't get bent out of shape. What did, what did you do? I mean, why did you do it that way? What did you do? What were you thinking? And so you're, you have an opportunity kind of in real time to learn from experts. And another thing you can do, even if you're thrown into the million-dollar one, is to have somebody you can reflect with so that at the end of the day you can say, how's it going? What did we do well with it? What didn't we do well? So that there's a learning feedback loop built in, which once again, musicians, athletes, dancers, anybody in any kind of art or craft already has. But you need that because if you just get caught up in the project itself, it's like a runaway train and you don't reflect until you get done with it. And that could be a year and a half later and cost your company tons of money. uh, What do you see then as the stages for successful change? Well, the uh, the first thing is the leaders need to address why before how. In other words, the people who need to go along, be champions, be engaged, need to understand why the change is needed before you ever get into how we're going to do it. And that sounds really obvious, but most changes, the leaders get worried about, oh, we've got to address this, we've got to address that, or here's an opportunity, and they move right to action. And the first time those hundreds of people hear about it is when you're in the planning stage and saying, okay, next Monday morning, here's what we're going to do. And what you miss is that connecting the dots for people. And it's really hard for people to get engaged if they can't connect those dots for themselves. In fact, that's the biggest reason you get resistance. And it's not because you did something wrong. It's just you went way, way, way too fast. So the first thing is you've got to make a compelling case. And then the second thing is a pretty easy one. It's all the stuff that anybody has learned about project planning, like how do you set goals? How do you get people involved? How do you set up made success? All that. The third step is really pretty hard, and that is how do you keep the change alive over the long haul so you get results? And, and frankly, there's nothing fancy there. It's just keeping the eye on the ball. It's paying attention to the long game. And, and too often, senior leaders especially are so busy that they start to delegate and they go, okay, it's working fine. They move on to something else. And as soon as that happens, it sends a message, an unintended message around the organization like, uh-oh, this isn't top priority. I'm, I'm going to move off this now. There's no benefit for me. There's no benefit for us in doing that. So those are the three big stages. There's a fourth stage, which is getting back on track. And if you do the other three well, you really don't need that back on track stage. It's, just, it's good to know about it, like what happens if you start to get a lot of resistance, what do you do? But the organizations that handle making a case, getting started, keeping it alive, simply don't get that kind of show-stopping resistance. And there seems to be a natural tendency, though, for change to die off. I mean, there's a lot of enthusiasm over time. How do you keep it, as you say, alive? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Well, one thing is that why before how, that people really feel the fire in their belly, that they go, 
This is critically important. And so part of what has to keep getting reminded, the leader needs to keep reminding him or herself, and the organization needs a continual reminder, this is why we're doing it. These are the numbers we're shooting for. This is the value of what we're doing. So if it's a company, it very well may be a number, like we've got to service the debt this month or whatever it might be. If it's a nonprofit, it's whatever, whatever the goals are, what we're trying to serve. But it needs to be specific, and people need to continually be reminded of it. I mean, for one, we get down in the weeds and we forget the overall purpose And then the second reason is organizations have such a transfer of people these days. I mean, people in and out that you get six months or a year into a project, half your team may be brand new. And the expectation is that they're up to speed like everybody else. But the truth of the matter is they were dropped in and nobody said, hey, here's why we're doing it. So a big thing to do is to keep reminding yourself and and other people why this is important. And where does most resistance come from? Well, Actually, I identified three kinds of resistance and and put it in in really simple terms. It's I don't get it, I don't like it, or I don't like you. And the I don't get it kind of resistance is people simply don't understand what you're talking about. And that's the easiest one to deal with. Unfortunately, when people get resistance, often they revert to that one and they keep explaining and explaining and explaining. That's fine if people don't understand you, but often the resistance isn't that they don't understand. It's something else, and that something else might be, I don't like it, which is based on fear. There's something about this change that scares me. I'm going to lose my job. I'm an old dog. I can't learn new tricks. It could be a host of things. And the third, I don't like you, really means I'm looking at you as the leader, and I don't trust you to lead this project. You know, you haven't been a good steward before. You get all excited, you pump people up, and then two months later you've moved on to something else. So I'm not going to get behind you. Or you say, this is critically important, it's job number one, you use all the right words, and then you don't give any budget for it. So when I'm working with a client, when they call me and say, we need some help, I'm always looking at, do people get it? What's their reaction? Do they like it or not? And three, do they have trust and confidence in the leaders or not? And that's where the strategies for building support for change begin. And this is really getting people on board from the very beginning and connecting the dots for them. Yes, yes. Yeah, the more involved they can be throughout the process, the higher the likelihood that you're going to be successful. You know, organizing this change gets easier over time. How does one, you know, narrow the gap over time? As you yeah. I mean, the big thing really is practice. I mean, if you... Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, I'm a fledgling jazz musician, play part-time, and the people I know who really play it well are continually practicing, are continually getting better at it. And what, what that means is they're continually reflecting on what they do. And it's amazing to me how often I'll get to play with somebody really good, and I'll say, hey, that was a great solo, and they'll go, well, no. And, and it isn't that they have a, you know, a bad self-image. They really are thinking about how it could be better. And they're really continually working. And it takes that kind of attitude, that kind of growth kind of mindset. I've never reached mastery that I've got to keep working, I've got to keep working, I've got to keep thinking about it, that, that can really support people uh, moving ahead on this. But the other thing that really works is once you start to get some successes under your belt and the organization says, oh, we're more successful at change than not. Now you start to have more people willing to get involved, to volunteer to be leaders, and so you start to create a culture that supports change. And in this day and age, it's exactly what you need. 
you know, there was a time when change was a unique occurrence. That's not true anymore. So that the more you can build it into the culture that changes what we do, and not only that, we know how to do it well, then you've got a lot of people taking responsibility, and it's not just you having to be the champion. What differences did you find when you first wrote the book and how the situation is like now? When I first wrote the book, it was the mid-'90s. And at the time, 70% of changes failed. And so when I got invited to revise the book, and that started last fall, I was curious. I thought, I wonder what the failure success rate is today. And I was really stunned to learn that studies show the seven, that um, the failure rate is still 70%. So on one hand, things haven't changed. But that's really surprising because in the last 15 years, there have been countless books out there on change. Almost every manager has had training in change management. There have been whole consulting practices started to work with change management. And you would think we would be really good at it now. In fact, if your listeners did an Amazon search right now, on the, not a Google search, an Amazon search on change management, the last time I did it a couple months ago, I got 1,300 responses. So there's a lot of resources there, and we're not getting better. And that's really the focus I took with this new book. And so one is to use Pfeffer and Sutton's notion of the knowing-doing gap. Just a couple of other things that, that I've learned recently. There's a couple people at Harvard, Bob Keegan and Lisa Lay, who say that we as individuals have an immunity to change, and they wrote a book on that. And as I started looking at that and talking with them, I started to realize organizations have an immunity to change. So they say they want to do things. They want to get people involved and people engaged. But their practices are something different than that. And it's not that they're hypocrites, that there is something else at stake. And the better leaders and the better organizations are able to to kind of capture that tension and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We say we want this, but we're doing that. We, we say we want people involved, yet every time we get them involved, we tell them what to do. We have no chance, no chance for them to get engaged. We've got to change that. And the fourth thing that I found is the culture that a change sits in is critically important. I mean, the whole context. A lot of the books on change are written as if at a department store is exactly the same as change in the U.S. Navy, is exactly the same as someplace else, and that's just not the case. I mean, the circumstances surrounding a change, surrounding an organization, are, are as important as the steps you go through. And so it's really important to look at that and not take the word of any author. And clearly, I'm an author, and, but, but taking it and saying, does this fit our culture? Do you think pace of change has uh, increased? Uh, yeah. Yes, and frankly, and that's one of the things that I think has kept the failure rate high, is the pace of change. Not only has the pace increased, but the complexity has increased. I have more and more clients whose team, just their team, the people who report to them, are all over the world. I was in a meeting, I guess, about six weeks ago, and my client pulled in people from her team. It was about 100 people, and they came from South America, the Middle East, Asia, and Europe, and the United States. And she's trying to run a team with tons of different cultures, tons of different time zones. And that's been there for a long time, but it's more and more the norm for people who work in big organizations. And that is really challenging. Well, the new book you've written, Beyond the Wall of Resistance, Why 70% of All Changes Still Fail and What You Can Do About It, uh, is now out. Thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks. We're just listening to Rick Maurer discussing Beyond the Wall of Resistance. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, the Grokatron 5000. So stay tuned. Get back and reach the stars. Pull one down for you. 
It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Unstoppable Force or Immovable Object. So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're an unstoppable force or an immovable object and a little reason why. Jamari, ready to play the game? I'm ready. Here we go. Person number one, uh, unstoppable force, immovable object, golfer, Tiger Woods. I think he's an unstoppable force. Really? <laughs> uh, yes. I, I think. I mean, I realize he's not playing so well right now, 
uh, and there's other things going on. But we forget scandals. I mean, we just, as a public, a new scandal will come up, and we'll, we'll forget about it. And he's such a great golfer to watch. And he's really got – he's one of those people who's practiced and practiced and practiced. And all joking – I mean, I don't want to go into any of the kind of jokes we could go into. As a golfer, the guy is brilliant. And I think he's unstoppable as a golfer. All right. <laughs> Person number two, it's the uh, pop star Lady Gaga. <laughs> Wow, man, I am out of my league. The first answer is I don't know, but (laughs) my hunch is she's not an an unstoppable force because it seems like a lot of pop stars burn bright, shine high in the sky, but but fade away pretty quickly. So, you know, I I could be completely wrong. You know, don't tape this, but my guess is that in a few years that she's going to be on the B or C circuit. (laughs) All right, uh, number three, uh, Warren Buffett. Boy, except, you know, except for age, doesn't seem to have caught up with him, and that's delightful. I think, you know, except for that, I think he's unstoppable. I mean, when he, you know, one of the great things I think about Buffett, when he makes a mistake, he says he made a mistake. I think he has that capacity to keep learning and keep learning and keep learning. I have tremendous confidence in that guy. Mm, Indeed, indeed. Number four, it's uh, Apple CEO Steve Jobs. (laughs) (laughs) God, you know, he... It's mixed. I mean, I really think there was a tremendous amount of arrogance in the the problem with the iPhone 4. I mean, you know, blaming it all on user error and then trying to say, no, no, but look at <laughs> look at how people hold these other phones. I, it just it sends a message like you're lucky to be able to own one of these things. Now, they but you know, as a force, as Apple is a force. I mean. They are so attractive. I mean, the fact that people line up overnight to buy new products from them, as if it were a rock concert, uh, says to me that he's probably unstoppable. Well, at least for now, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, well, finally, unstoppable force, immovable object, it's the uh, President of the United States, Barack Obama. Wow. I want our President to be an unstoppable force. I mean, I, obviously, I don't, I, don't wanna, I, I don't want a dictator. I, I want him to be successful. And, and, and my fear is, there, there, even before he was elected, there are a lot of forces working against him. And there's a lot, if you talk about the context for change, you know, there's a lot that when we all voted, that simply wasn't on the horizon then. But I think he's a bright man. I think he I think he's, has the capacity to learn from setbacks, like the thing that just happened with the Department of Agriculture. My hunch is that he and the team in the White House have learned some lessons, and I bet we're not going to see a repeat of that. All right. Well, Mr. Maurer, I want to thank you very much for uh, your time sticking around playing the game and, of course, talking about your new book, Beyond the Wall of Resistance. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. It was a real pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.